this is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Hi folks, David Jameson here, editor of Contra.Scot. I'm very glad to be joined today by Leandros Fischer, who's an assistant professor for international studies at Aalborg University in Denmark also based part of his time in uh, Germany, to talk about the Ukraine war one year on and the Iraq war 20 years on and the travel, let's say, and ideology in wider society and on the left between those two wars. I was inspired to um, conduct this interview because of an excellent article that Leandros wrote um, first for Left Berlin, and we republished it on Conta, seeking to come to terms with how it could be that the left was so successful in creating an international anti-war movement 20 years ago, uh, and then that so many on the left collapsed in behind their respective camps when it came to the war raging in Ukraine 20 years later. Leandros, thanks very much uh, for speaking to me today. Thank you, David, for having me. But can I just start with um, the, your article written a year ago? You opened the article by talking about that collapse, you know, people... Making, I mean, people forget just how feverish the atmosphere was one year ago. There was a sort of witch hunt on the left. It wasn't uncommon uh, in my country, for example, for for Mm. people on the left to call for others to be kicked out of universities, to be thrown out of trade unions, social movements even. It became quite vicious um, in a hunt for supposed Putinites and so on who um, have never materialised, I have to say. Um, and also a general swing in behind the institutions of trans, the transatlantic order like NATO, um, even to the point where there was a denial that NATO had played any role in the deterioration mm. of, uh, of global circumstances. W- what was it like where you were and, and what are your memories of those days of that, that sudden um, kind of war fever and, and backlash against the anti-war left? Yeah, well... It's uh, it's a bit contradictory because uh, I was actually at that time um, going a lot between um, Hamburg, where I where I live, um, mm. and uh, and you know Denmark as well. Uh, on the one hand, and Cyprus, where I'm where I actually grew up and I'm from, and I, I noticed um, a really big contrast in the way that people were perceiving the war. I was I was actually um, in in Cyprus on the 22nd of February, and um, I was also shocked. I, w- I was in disbelief about about the invasion news because uh, I think a lot of us in the left were pretty much convinced that um, that it would be very foolish for Russia to uh, to actually launch an invasion uh, yeah. because the stakes in you know in russia's stakes in the liberal international order were just too important to jeopardize but i think the fact that russia did invade actually goes to prove that uh, you know some of the arguments we're making along in the uh, marxist left that uh, you know imperialism um interstate competition are still important uh, variables in the 21st century but you know closing this parenthesis um in in Cyprus, actually, the the first condemnation of uh, first of the uh, recognition of independence by the so-called People's Republics, uh, and then of the invasion itself, actually came from the left. Mm-hmm. It came from uh, from Agel, which is the 
you know, it, it's a it's officially a communist party uh, uh, and also the largest opposition party. And it, they were actually the first ones to call um, uh, a demonstration against the Russian invasion, where they also condemned NATO's role in exacerbating uh, and more or less uh, provoking uh, Russia with, you know, the eastern expansion of, of NATO the past two decades. Nonetheless, there was, uh, you know, a very big backlash, as well as in Greece, where the, the Communist Party took a very similar position, uh, where the left was being, uh, you know, um, defamed as being sort of uh, in bed with, with Putin and, and all those arguments. Uh, but I wouldn't say that it was as, as successful because, of course, there are uh, deep memories of U.S. and Western intervention uh, that are very much alive in Cyprus and, uh, and in Greece. So the, there might be some kind of diffuse element that you know, might think that everything that has to do with Russia is per se good. But I think the, uh, the main kind of thrust was that you know, this is actually an imperialist war. Um, there's nothing to be gained here uh, through supporting any of those two sides. Anyway, then I, in early March, uh, I happened to be back in Germany and I was pretty much shocked by the very, you know, there were all these demonstrations that were, it was a very large one in Berlin, I think half a million people, largest demonstration since the Iraq war, where, uh, there were, there, I mean, there was an obvious contradiction in the sense that people were saying, you know, stop the war. On the other hand, they were saying, um, you know, no fly zone was, you know, the message in the early days of, of that war. So it was a very, um, uh, very suffocating atmosphere. I remember um, uh, going into a discussion in, in Hamburg in uh, the Waterflora, which is, uh, you know, one of the famous uh, left-wing squads in the city. Uh, and it, it was one um, where um, a, a good friend of mine, speaker from the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation, was uh, giving a kind of a Marxist account of what happened in the war. And we were just maybe 20 to 30 people sitting. It was kind of like a self-help group because everybody was recounting uh, their experience with somebody they knew uh, from you know, family, friends, or from political uh uh, backgrounds that you know they had a fight with because they uh, they were convinced that the right thing to do right now is just to uh, arm the Ukraine and, and provide weapons and um, they were basically this frame of um, of looking at the war purely as as one of Ukrainian self defense was was predominant and still is of course very strong in in Germany nowadays. That's a really fascinating distinction um, between Greece and, and Germany. I mean, I suppose on the one hand, you did point out there, um, in Greece has a very different relationship to NATO um, and a different history yeah. in, in relation to that kind of foreign policy. Uh, and that perhaps explains um, a difference. But also, I mean, I think it's a reminder that contra what was being said at the time, by some, you may remember there was a kind of circular letter going around condemning the so-called Western left for being insufficiently ah, yeah, yeah. enthusiastic for the war. But as you've just said, the further westward you go in Europe, you know, of course there's a there's a difference with um, you know states like Poland mm -hmm. um, and the Baltic states and so on. But it's interesting that it's um, 
this is a politics when you go into the into the heartlands of the European Union that's where you find a lot of the most ebullient kind of war fever um and 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 so on um so I mean I, I you made a good point as well and I perhaps should have started with this by saying um alongside the backlash there were also significant elements of the left you know putting forward opposition simultaneously to Putin and to mm. uh to the to, to NATO's expansion, its years of war, uh, its aggressive posture increasingly towards towards Russia. And this was something widely denied um, in the media, even in places where it had been accepted up to that point. You know, it used to be much less controversial to discuss NATO enlargement. Yeah. Um, and it was a, an evident fact that you couldn't ignore. And at the same time, it was also much more common to explain, to discuss the real internal problems in Ukraine, far-right radicalization, corruption, um, and, and so on. Not, of course, that any of those things in any way, um, you know, justify a, a, an invasion of the of the country. But all of that went out the window straight away. And the, the, the debate was very quickly marshaled into mm. you're on Ukraine's side or you're on Putin's side and, um, yeah, of course. and, 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 and so on. Um, I mean, do you think, why do you think that the, the mood turned that way so, so quickly? Uh, yeah, that's actually a very interesting question. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out the answer for that myself. Uh, I think a comparison maybe with, uh, with the movement, with, with, the, with the time that lapsed from the movement against the war in Iraq until, until today might, maybe might provide some, some context because you know i mean i've talked before about the differences maybe between a, a very like western european framing of things and uh what is a southeastern european almost middle eastern framing of uh of superpower power rivalry but um it's it's important to remember that uh in germany there was traditionally a very very uh, strong peace movement um, I mean, there were hundreds of thousands being mobilized in the 1980s against nuclear weapons, and nobody, uh, you know, the, the only uh, the most right-wing politicians would would dare accuse the peace movement of being, you know, a Soviet uh, instrument or, or or something like that. Actually, uh, the peace movement was also very strong in East Germany um, at that time. Um, then you had, you know, the large um, mobilizations uh, against the U.S. war on Iraq in 2003. Uh, and, and you also had a German government, uh, which, you know, I mean, very opportunistically, of course, but for its own reasons, publicly opposed the war on Iraq. And that actually gave um, the peace movement some more credibility and legitimacy. Uh, what happened between those, uh, between those two wars in the last 20 years is maybe goes some way in... Um, helping to explain why so many people that were on the wrong side uh, uh, regarding Iraq, uh, you know, landed uh, with, you know, uh, arguments on self-determination and, and digging up, you know, uh, pieces by Lenin that were written 100 years ago in the Ukraine as, you know, as legitimizing, leg legitimizing frameworks for supporting what is essentially the NATO position. I mean, this is this is purely hypothetical, but I think that 
let, let's put it this way. We had, I mean, I mean, in the early 2000s, I think, you know, in Europe and North America, th there were basically two movements that were really strong. It was the movement for another globalization and the anti-war movement. And it's also important, I think, to, to remember that um, the anti-war movement did not have an easy ride even back then. I mean, I remember when 9-11 uh, happened, uh, there was a, a huge paralysis and there were a lot of debates within the um, alter globalization movement if 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 there should be a focus on, on war because there were a lot of wings that said, no, we should purely focus on global social justice and, you know, imposing the imposing the Tobin tax on financial transactions and that. And there was a battle that was fought to actually come out with a clear position against the war. And it was actually won. And I think it's from that moment, that historical moment that, you know, we also have things like Jeremy Corbyn winning the leadership of the Labour Party in 2015. Um, I think what happened was that, um, I, well, in, after the global financial crash, we had the different, you know, convulsions that happened uh, with, uh, you know, we had Occupy, the occupation of the squares, and they sort of uh, translated themselves into political um, challenges, uh, you know, Podemos in Spain, Syriza in Greece, uh, the Labour uh, Party under Corbyn in the UK, Bernie Sanders in the US, and, you know, the, the list goes on. And I think um, there was this sort of, I mean, I see it in the case of Die Linke, which is, you know, a party that was to a large extent founded on shared opposition to German militarism. In, in 2000, the mid 2000s, um, I see that there was this kind of idea that, you know, um, we've been focusing too much on abstract things like militarism and war. We should focus more on bread and butter issues. Um, and th this kind of false opposition was created, you know, between the, uh, you know, the, 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 things that you cannot really influence as a left and the other things that you can influence preferably if you're in government you know uh and i and and i think that this process where um thematics of you know interstate rivalry imperialism become is, is becoming gradually less significant it's actually a very long process that i would say reaches for a decade and um, and the clear results, you have them, I mean, now with like, figures like uh, Bernie Sanders or uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the U.S. being full behind uh, the U.S. line, the U.S. government line on the war. Um, John McDonald in, 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 in the U.K. signing a petition uh, to increase the delivery of weapons, which I, I found quite shocking. And also, you know, large parts of the link is saying that, um, you know, we might disagree on if we should send weapons or not, like in the best case, but we should support the Ukraine and Russia is to blame. And that's it. There's no contest. There's nothing. So I think the um, I would say that this transformation that a lot of people uh, have been through has a lot to do with. Um, maybe failed uh, expectations, disappointment from uh, from the great um, cycle of social movements and political parties that you had 10 years ago. 
And it, in some cases, I don't want to generalize, but I think it, it translates into um, this sort of, you know, trailing of one's own ruling class and this idea that, you know, the good thing is being done for the wrong reasons. So that's objectively good. I don't think there are any kind of Trotskyists that would, you know, support NATO ideologically, but there are definitely some that would say things like, well, you know, NATO is doing this because it has to, or something like that. Yeah, I could, I, I, I could go go into all sorts of arguments, but I don't think that's necessary. Why, from what I can understand, the present attitude of some, even on the far left towards NATO, is that it might create a progressive outcome in the Ukraine war, sort of by accident. You know what I mean? And mm -hmm. you know, like, um, you know, we know that they are fighting there with bad intentions. We know that from from NATO's point of view, it's a proxy war. But what if things turn out okay? What if they pile all these weapons into the country and, you know, like fight, duke it out with Russia, and then almost by accident, there's a progressive outcome to the to the conflict, which strikes me as incredibly reckless. But I think that you you make a good point about um, the demoralization of parts of the left through a sequence of failures and uh, a sort of mood of conservatism and anti-political attitudes, which have um reemerged in the in the left so that as you say you know people say well the real battleground for the left is fighting these kind of bread and butter issues there's a kind of um there's a kind of small s syndicalism you know what i mean like mm. what really matters is quote unquote the class struggle narrowly yeah. understood narrowly defined in a, in a um, very reformist and social democratic way and not necessarily a left-wing social democratic way no abso absolutely okay it's, it's it's almost a form of respectability politics you know what mm. working class people really care about is you yeah. know um yeah their their own pay packets their own immediate conditions and working class people naturally have no perspective beyond that um uh, quite a patronizing attitude to to the interests of working class people but i think that is a strong part of it and an anti-politics mood that as we you know we should remember there's a, there's a an almost permanent anti-political temptation on the left these days partly because of um uh, yeah an experience of you know capitalist realism all that kind of mm, stuff yeah. like, there's no yeah. overall alternative the best thing you can do is fight for improved situations in the here and now i think though there is um some responsibility for those of us who view ourselves as being on a consistently anti-war or anti-imperialist left i mean I'll, I'll tell you that i mean i got involved in politics during the iraq war movement that was you know the first protests i went on were in against the iraq war and I remember thinking in the years following that, we've won this argument, mm. you know, like we've broken the back of so-called liberal interventionism. It's very difficult now to, to carry this argument. And we were maybe napping a bit when through some, I mean, in the British context, um, of course, we had the Libya intervention. And we had various attempts at intervention around Syria, one of which was famously thwarted. A second went ahead under the under the banner of fighting Islamic State, but it was, you know, it was an intervention for various reasons. And it's not that there was widespread support, perhaps, for the Libya bombing, 
or the bombing of Syria, although there were some outspoken supporters, many of whom have gone on to be outspoken supporters mm. of the NATO proxy war uh, operation. Um, but what there more was, was a kind of ambivalence. And I think that comes from two places. One is the anti-politics we've discussed. Another is, I, st I still think, a certain moralism and a certain identitarian politics does have a purchase in parts of the activist left. Yeah, I think yeah, people yeah. find it hard to say, you know, you know, because when you hear Gaddafi's gonna kill all, you know, everyone in Libya, or where when you hear, mm. you know, what Putin's doing in Ukraine, it's hard to resist this sort of you're sitting in the comfy West, meanwhile, people elsewhere in the world, much poorer than you, in a much diff more difficult position, they're dying. And I still think that has a has a real purchase in the left. And it's sad to say it's probably increased its purchase in the last year of the Ukraine war. Yeah, um, there is definitely an element of that. Um, I mean, consider the way that we all know who these people are who sort of act like native informants and morally accuse the quote-unquote Western left, so I don't have to mention them by name, uh, that uh, they're using a kind of a framing that is very much to be found in, in contemporary academia, which is seeing the um, seeing the war in, in Ukraine as a kind of a war for self-determination and, you know, drawing all kinds of, I would say, ridiculous parallels with Vietnam uh, or Algeria or whatever. And then also saying that anything that the Ukrainian government does, for example, by removing uh, the Russian language by by banning Russian writers and all this kind of regressive nationalist stuff, that this is sort of, you know, a, a decolonial uh, perspective. So I think that, well, you know, anybody can quote a Ukrainian with with that shares uh, that shares uh, his or her opinion, his or her opinion. But the thing about the war in Ukraine is that I mean, first of all, of course, it's a war of of national self-defense uh, against foreign invasion. I mean, there is no denying into that. But there are also, of course, other aspects which are internal to Ukraine. It's not like Ukraine is now suddenly a unified society uh, and, uh, you know, everyone's Ukrainian and everybody hates Russian. And I mean, of course, Russia's image has taken a, a big bad hit, uh, predictably. But from the moment that this war is, you know, threatening to escalate to the point of a general confrontation between Russia and NATO, or from the point of view that this war is, is, is really affecting the global south through rising uh, uh, food prices, then it, it's a war that concerns all of us. You know, you cannot really say that this is... Uh, you know, that the lived experience of, of the average Ukrainian is, you know, the one that defines the left's attitude or not to the war, because it's not something that is entirely external to us. It's actually becoming much more internal uh, in, in, in local politics in, in the West. But, you know, it, it, it's, its effects on, you know, on the global South are, have been disastrous so far. So there is a... Um, so there is a global interest, you know, um, to to end this war, or at least to have a ceasefire, which is, you know, the most pressing thing. Um, 
I think that, yeah, I would, so to come back, I would say that, yeah, there's been a lot of, you know, capitulation, I would say, to very liberal forms of, you know, identity politics, which, you know, um, taking to their extreme are, you know, are revealing themselves to be highly regressive. There is this sort of denial that there is any kind of problem with neo-fascism in the Ukraine. You know, the fascists are only on the Russian side. And it's, uh, and it's pretty dangerous because as I, you know, I argued elsewhere that um, this war is actually leading to a rehabilitation, you know, of, of fascist uh, forces across Europe in two ways, either by allowing um, right-wing populists, neo-fascists like the IFD in Germany to pose as sort of the only ones consistently in favor of ending the war, which is, you know, this is a direct result of the left's paralysis, but also in other ways, such as, um, you know, the way that any kind of politician in Europe with a fascist past can just pay a visit to Kiev or, or pledge to send more weapons to Ukraine and they are rehabilitated. We have, you know, Georgia Meloni in Italy, which, I mean, she's a direct political descendant of Benito Mussolini. She, there's, you know, her government is being described in German media as simply right wing. There's, you know, so I, I was I was just going to raise the the question of Italy. It was clear when Maloney came in, and she represents, as you say, you know, the lineal descendants from from Mussolini's party and the most right wing government, uh, the most reactionary government to to take power in in Italy. It's obviously had waves of increasingly um, <laughs> dangerous sort of governments. Um, it was clear from the European Union's reaction to her coming to office that um, her support for the war effort in Ukraine, in their eyes, legitimised her. Regardless to any, any of her other utterances, her policies or whatever, the really dangerous parts of the right in Italy, as far as they were concerned, were any who might go look warm on the, on the war in, in, in Ukraine. Meanwhile, I just saw the other day, her party's youth wing, is out there on the streets beating people up, you know, um, <laughs> and and there's there's very little criticism from European institutions or any of this kind of stuff, because she's seen as someone who's holding Italy, a country quite vulnerable um, to the economic war in particular, mm. but she's holding the line for the EU mm. and NATO in Italy, so everything else she does is is absolutely fine. It's astonishing to me that a couple of years ago. Liberal journals in Britain, like The Guardian and New Statesman uh, and various others, were absolutely demented in over their fear of um, the far right. And they saw Nazis everywhere, even when they weren't Nazis. You know, I mean, the, the panic over Donald Trump and, 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 and so on to flip flop from an almost you know, irrational level of, of panic over the far right to wholehearted acceptance of the far right because it supports um, a war. And as we know as well, and it's, it's so little commented on, the relationship between war and far right radicalization in Europe mm -hmm. is incredibly close. Yeah, of course. We can, we can watch it with our eyes. We can see what's going on, how the war is feeding. Two things simultaneously, a culture of violence, a legitimization of violence as part of ordinary politics, and ideas about um, the kind of essentially racial nature of civilization. You know, the Russians all of a sudden, they're not part of Europe. These are not real mm. Europeans anymore. They're sort of savage and backward in some sort of way. 
whereas the Ukrainians are true Europeans because they fight. You know, I mean, these are these are very this is a very explosive cocktail of ideas that's being bandied around um, in, in, in public life now. Um, I mean, how important do you think the contortions of parts of the liberal left in particular have been to the war, to legitimizing the war? I think uh, a lot of the positions that that I'm personally seeing, uh, I mean, they're so irrational, really irrational, that uh, I can only explain them as a kind of a, you know, we're, we're entering the realms of psychology, which I'm not an expert, but uh, it's as if people, some people decided that, you know, we, we might not have been able to overthrow capitalism, but at least we, we were able to beat Putin, who is... Uh, a homophobe and a nationalist and a reactionary. And uh, I mean, I think a lot of it comes from such a place. If, if I may allow, the, I mean, one of the, the most important kind of development in Germany in the recent weeks regarding this, um, this whole debate, I think is emblematic for the whole thing that we're discussing here. Um, there was, there, there is a, an appeal signed so far by half a million people for a big protest march in Berlin. The appeal was um, was written together. Uh, it, it's an appeal uh, by Zara Wagenknecht, who is uh, a sort of you know still in Die Linke, but increasingly out of favor with the leadership. And she you know she's kind of like on the more national sovereignist wing of Die Linke. I mean, I, I have my I have my uh, disagreements with her and. Ali Schwarzer, who is a second wave feminist, who um, has also, you know, has very problematic views on things like Islam. And, uh, you know, she's she's quite conservative nowadays. Uh, but they they put together this appeal which calls for direct negotiations. And it's uh, a lot of the signatories are, you know, are prominent members of the SPD, uh, like uh, Günther Verheugen, who used to be the like EU commissioner for enlargement 20 years ago, you know, just to give an example. Uh, and people, let's say, from all the, the political spectrum uh, minus the, the far right. I mean, you have people, also Christian Democrats, signing this. And the, I would say that, you know, it, some things I would, I would classify as being you know, I hate the word problematic, but <laughs> um, in, in the sense that uh, Wagenknecht's criticism uh, of the German government's position comes from this kind of, you know, it's, it's, it's detrimental to our national interests, you know, which I don't think it's entirely is. I mean, there's also, obviously, there is some German national interest, or else they wouldn't be going along with it. But it has, you know, this is an opportunity actually to to sort of, this is an opportunity for the left. I mean, for the left that is much more clear on things like, you know, immigration and, and capitalism and all that to actually intervene. And um, there was, um, yeah, there was a kind of a, uh, the, the big debate was that, you know, on the one hand, Wagner said that uh, the IFD would not be allowed to participate. Uh, because one of the one of the IFD's main leaders signed the petition, she said that they're not welcome. They're trying to co-op the whole uh, thing and whatever. And this was a very welcome development. Uh, a couple of days later, her uh, now partner Oscar Lafontaine, who used to lead the, the SPD and was one of the key founders of Die Linke, 
he was asked if uh, AFD members would be welcome. And he said something along the lines of, uh, we're not going to, uh, um, we're not going to um, uh, interrogate people's political beliefs. Anybody who is sincerely for peace is welcome. We're not going to allow any right-wing symbols or flags at the demo, which um, could be interpreted as a kind of a, like, you know, he's not shutting the door entirely, but he's keeping it open. So that was a very, very bad thing to do. And then Wagenhecht came the other day and sort of stated that, oh, uh, you know, a bunch of right-wing extremists will not be allowed at the demonstration. Anyway, the point of this whole kind of uh, story, which I'm, I'm saying, is that it, it was very, you know, the, the Linke, the official Linke, is not supporting this demonstration. It is actually calling on people uh, to demonstrate for peace, you know, just peace, on the day of the Russian invasion. And, and, and some people, you know, are, are, are just going to march in front of Russian consulates, which is, you know, ridiculous because there's not something you can influence, that you can influence your own government. Now, the thing is that, um, you know, a lot of people are, are criticizing Wagenknecht and Lafontaine's position on the IFD because they're basically saying that, you know, the IFD, they're right-wing populists, they're not Nazis, you know, and you can... You know, we should fight them, but we should also try to win the people that vote for them over, which up to one point is true. And, and people have been going crazy about, you know, those beliefs that they have, which, you know, to some point I also, I mean, I, I also kind of share the uh, opposition to what Wagenknecht and Lafontaine is saying. But if you actually see who they're actually quoting in, in having this attitude, they're actually quoting you know, the quote-unquote post-Marxist Chantal Mouffe, who is like the, you know, the, the big theorist on left-wing populism, who explicitly says that, you know, right-wing populists are not fascists and there is a democratic nucleus uh, in their demands and the left should not demonize them because that will mean that, you know, they, uh, it will be possible to construct a left-wing populism. Now, I, I'm not a post-Marxist, and I don't share Chantal Mouffe's idea of populism. And I don't think, and I, and I think that to some extent, it's kind of a relativization of the danger posed by right-wing populists. But the fact that the same people who were going crazy about, you know, Chantal Mouffe, you know, on the left and liberal side of the political spectrum are now actually attacking, you know, Wagenknecht and, and Lafontaine for saying the same things that Mouffe is saying it's just hypocritical and it's intellectually dishonest. So I don't know if I kind of made that made clear what, what, what we're talking about, but it's like it's like people are trying to find all kinds of excuses to not take a clear position uh, against this war, which is, you know, it's it's obviously a proxy war. I mean, uh, Josep Borrell said the other day that if uh, if if Ukraine runs out of ammunition, if we don't give more weapons, the war will be over. Which, you know, it's a very nice Freudian slip of, of, of how, no, absolutely. how... Absolutely. It's an interesting point about um, Wagenecht and, um, and the debates that are going on in the, in, in, in the German left. Um, it's also kind of mirrored by events in the United States. I don't know if you saw, but um, there was a, a debate in the United States about, you know, some, some sort of right-wing figures in the kind of libertarian, paleo-conservative... Yeah. Uh, side of politics had kind had um, 
I suppose the sort of isolationist is the way the yeah, yeah. wing of, of the Republican Party had organised an anti-war rally and invited figures from the left along. Uh, and it's a difficult it's a difficult debate. The reality is the left didn't get there first. You know, this is part of the problem. Um, and then, you know, it's, it's, it's a serious problem that parts of the right are, you know, outdoing out, out the left on... Uh, on questions of uh, opposing the proxy war. And it's related, as you said, to things like, you know, the squad didn't put themselves ahead of the debate. Sanders didn't either. No, no matter what good things people want to say about Bernie Sanders, he's always been very tepid on American foreign policy. He's always sought a compromise where, you know, I'll leave America's foreign policy yeah. perspectives in many regards alone. And then I'll focus on domestic policy, healthcare, and and so on. He's always been been part of that. And when you pursue that line, you're suddenly left in a very invidious situation where the right dominates anti-war sentiment. I'm not going to second guess anyone in in, in Germany's perspective on how you would organise an anti-war movement there, but you know it becomes inevitable that you have to seek to split support from right wing and pro you know anti-war forces yeah. if you if you start off on the on the back foot, on the I mean, the, the right, the right is always uh, that the, the right is always is trying to uh, to hijack um, legitimate discontent at the status quo. It's nothing new. I mean, mm. uh, actually, to, to speak of about Germany, when when Die Linke was founded uh, in in the mid two thousands, it was this, that was the direct result of the so called Monday demonstrations against the restructuring of the welfare state. And during those demonstrations, the right tried to play a role, but it, it couldn't because uh, because the left basically said that we're not going to let them. And nobody remembers those demonstrations as being right-wing demonstrations because the left dominated the narrative. What has changed since then is that you know we have with Delinke an, an institutionalized party of parliament in parliament of you know of the left. Nobody knows for how long. Might be out in the next uh, elections, um, but there's always this kind of drive for respectability. It's uh, it, it, it's a party that fears its own shadow, and not just in the Ukraine. It was the same thing with the debate on scrapping the eurozone or not in 2013, and and, and that was before there was the IFD actually. And uh, when when some people suggested that you know maybe the eurozone and uh, is not this kind of internationalist project, uh, there were all these accusations. Or ah, but if you're if you say this, you're advocating for a regressive return to the nation state, and and this kind of habitus of distancing distancing oneself from from this and that, and just saying. Things that are, you know, I like to call it the extreme left of acceptable discourse is uh, has become so ingrained, you know. And there is, I mean, if you have a position which is, you know, posing a real challenge to the established order, then inevitably people are going to accuse you of the worst things, you know. I mean, you saw that with Jeremy Corbyn in the UK and the whole anti-Semitism affair. It, it's part of the process, and I think a lot of people are forgetting that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Fill me in on one um, another issue of German uh, politics, which is the role of the of the Greens there. Mm. Um, and I can't help but see this as 
a portentous mutation. I suspect we're going to end up with a wing of hopefully a small wing, but you know, the Green Party in Germany is quite well established and quite a significant political force. You know, there's going going to be a wing of left-wing politics which is just sort of rabid liberal imperialism. I mean, the things yeah. you see coming out of the Greens are truly demented. As far as they are concerned, there's something almost mystically left-wing about this war. Like they 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 attach the war directly to their wider policy programs of environmental uh you know um repair and 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 so on. There are journalists in, in my country who say things like um this isn't just a war against, you know, this vile dictator. It's a war against um carbon power. You know, it's it's a war against yeah. the oil power, almost in the same way as that's why they blow up pipelines that uh <laughs> that that <laughs> you know, it, I think that was like one third of uh, uh, of fossil uh, emissions uh, of Denmark being released in yeah. in one day. Yeah. So uh, yeah, yeah. So, so it's um. But this is a war against the oil power by you know progressive, increasingly progressive kind of net zero um, Western <laughs> Europe and so on. Um. There was a there's a campaign group in in Britain. Um, called uh, Another Europe is Possible, who are like a kind of uh, oh, yeah. pro-EU, ostensibly, you know, anti-capitalist uh, kind of outfit. They say it's a war against toxic masculinity. You know, there's a, and this, like I say, it's almost it's almost willfully irrational. You know, it's 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 kind of scary almost. What's it like living with the with the German Greens? <laughs> Well, uh, it's, yeah, um, I mean, I think to some extent the Greens have been discredited, you know, because, I mean, A, their main kind of political personnel is is really not that competent. Like Annalena Baerbock and Robert Habeck are simply not clever people, you know. I mean, we're talking about somebody who uh, a couple of days ago at the Munich uh, security uh, summit said that you know Russia will al- only change if Putin does a 360 degree turn, and you know, <laughs> I mean stuff like that. Um, on the other hand, you know, there have been, I mean, the fact that uh, the government has been, you know, the Greens have been, uh, you know, sucking up to uh, oil or gas dictatorships like Qatar. Saudi Arabia uh, is making actually a mockery of any kind of ecological angle um, to this war. Uh, But I think that what the Greens are really, really good at is in in framing this war as a matter of justice. And if you are for, there, there can only be either justice or peace and peace will be by itself the negation of justice. Uh, and they, they bring this very radical veneer to 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 the pro-war argument, and I think this is also a result of the left's weakness. Like the official Linke has a position which is very much against uh, the delivery of of weapons. Uh, on the one hand, it calls for uh, negotiations, but it, it it acts as if this is completely dependent on Russia. And then it has this kind of really weird position that says that there should be this kind of summit between the EU and China and God knows how many other countries, you know, which is kind of like 
nobody buys that position because it's just so you know unrealistic and they're saying that you know there are other ways to defeat putin like with sanctions with uh you know which are not working anyway so a lot of people who are you know maybe young go to university and are interested in justice they're seeing uh they're seeing delinke being like uh you know we are also for you know the defeat of russia but maybe in another way and then they see the greens who are you know let's be practical about it we want to see russia defeated and we have to send more weapons you know and of course they're going to go for the greens and this is because there's so many things that the link the official delink i mean there are many members prominent members and activists that are doing you know a lot of good information work on the ground but the official delink is afraid to say or either doesn't want to say that the reason why this war is is going on is not because you know Russia is irrational and wants to you know dominate the whole of Ukraine and invade Finland or whatever it's it's because uh you know the the last attempts at reaching a ceasefire were sabotaged by the west and now i mean we we have if if the former israeli prime minister isn't a credible you know, credible source in the eyes of Western public uh, opinion. And I don't know what is, you know, we, they're not saying those things. They are concealing key facts. And, you know, they are, they are proceeding from, from the premise that Putin is the incarnation of evil and Zelensky's, you know, I mean, he's a good guy somehow, or, you know, he has no choice or, or whatever. He's getting help from wherever he can. And because Dilinke is not saying that, that actually helps this, it strengthens the appeal of the Greens, or at least it, it maintains, the Greens maintain this appeal. Just another thing I want to say uh, about the Greens is that a lot of people, not now, but for the last 20 years, have, have been interpreting the right-wing shift of the Greens as this kind of personal sellout, you know, they, they, they saw power and they sold themselves to power, lock, stock and barrel. That's why they're doing what they're doing. Um, I believe that the reason, uh, I mean, it was already inherent in the whole philosophy of the Greens because the Greens, when they appeared on the scene in the early 1980s and with, with a lot of commendable positions like dissolving NATO and, you know, removing uh, U.S. cruise missiles from German soil, they were actually emerging in a period of defeat of, of the movements. Uh, and they were very, very um, uh, oriented towards respectability, parliaments, reformism. Hence, there was no kind of political economic analysis, for example, back then, of why the U.S. wants to station missiles in Germany. There was all, it, it was just like this moralistic yes, no, black, white. Peace, war, you know, and it's very easy to turn this, you know, uh, like moralistic view of the world divided into the good guys and the bad guys with no shades of gray between. You can you can flip it over from one end to the other. That's why the Greens have never lost, have have never uh, took this hit uh, as the uh, you know when they changed their when they threw their pacifism overboard the same way that the SPD took a hit when they threw their, uh, you know, their defense of the welfare state overboard. 
Um, and uh, yeah, the, the, I think this is actually, um, you know, the, there is a line. And, and don't forget, I mean, Germany is also very, you know, Protestant political culture where it's all about, you know, feeling guilty and, uh, you know, all that stuff. I mean, which which religion isn't about feeling guilty and uh, kind of think about it now, but you know what I mean? It's this, oh, we are so righteous and oh, how could we, uh, how could we possibly let this happen? And, you know, what would that say about us? And, yeah, there's there's one last kind of thing I wanted to ask about yeah. this, which is, um, it seems to me, and this is something that you see right across the board of the European left, not just on the question of the Ukraine war, but on very many questions. There's a fear on parts of the kind of socialist left or radical left of trying to win an argument. You know, so like, yeah. I can well imagine how the fudge position that you've just described that Delinka has come up with. These constant fudges, we are trying to appeal to everyone all at once and say, oh, no, 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 we, we're ethical in all directions and so on. And um, yes, we support the war, but in a very progressive way. Um, there's a fear of engaging people in saying, here's what we believe. I'm mm -hmm. going to now try and persuade you that this is the best approach to the current situation. Um, what, you know, what explains that? What explains the fear of trying to get a message that really cuts through publicly. The only way, I mean, I honestly do believe that if Delinka had come out from the start of the war, it might have taken a hit initially, but if you say, or seem to say right from the very beginning, um, listen, we oppose this war, we want the fastest route to uh, a negotiated ceasefire, mm. and uh, we're not going to shut up about Western foreign policy and how it brought us to this situation. You would make yourself so distinctive from the very start. Yes, you would certainly polarise opinion, some against you, but you would be able to cut into layers of the public who are um, suspicious of the kind of political consensus that develops around foreign policy questions. Yeah. It's at least worth a try. Because the only alternative, as you say, is to be a soggy, watered-down version of all the other parties. And you just have to ask, what is the point in that, you know? What is this fear of, of trying to take, uh, you know, a divisive position and trying to win an argument from, the from that point? I think the answer to that is, is partly structural. Um, I mean... To some extent, Die Linke is also a party that um, uh, moves around in a certain milieu, which is, you know, urban, university educated, and it um, it often competes with the Greens for the same kind of segment of, of opinion. Um, that's why, you know, a lot of the thrust of Die Linke's messaging is directed at ecological issues where the greens have been terribly inconsistent you know uh, so but i think that there is this um mistaken conflation of that particular layer of society with wider society and if you look at different polling i mean of course there is still i would say a majority in germany that you know um morally supports Ukraine as what it sees is uh, and what it actually is as a foreign invasion. But you see that more and more people are actually um, 
less inclined to sacrifice uh, um, many things, uh, you know, for a Ukrainian victory. And, and a lot of people are, are genuinely afraid, I mean, of, of nuclear war. I am. It's, it's, a, it, it, it's a horrible thing to think about. And, uh, and, and that, that segment of society or people losing their jobs in manufacturing in Eastern Germany because of, you know, uh, companies, corporations moving their production facilities to the US where energy is cheaper, uh, they're not the ones to which many, you know, I would say considerable parts of the link are trying to appeal. And, you know, I remember in um, 2021, uh, where the link almost got thrown out of, of parliament. There were, you know, many people on social media, you know, even, you know, Trotskyists, uh, uh, saying things like, uh, a lot of people uh, approach us on, you know, the election campaign, saying things like, we agree with your position on social issues. But why are you so pro-Russian? <laughs> you know, and you know, I'm not saying anything. I'm just like throwing this into the debate. So there is also this kind of opportunism that if you if you you know kick out the bad Putinists from the party, whoever they are. I mean, the definition of Putinist and it has become so broad nowadays that uh, it's it's a joke. Um, then you know people would vote for Delinke, but but they're not going to. They're not going to. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's it's not just a failure in in, in political messaging. There's also a structural reason, which is that you know parts of the party are are looking towards um, uh, a milieu to fish, which which is not the one of a radical left party. It's one of a radical liberal party, maybe. I mean, yeah. I mean, in the UK, they're probably the same kind of issues within Corbynism, you know, with, within momentum and this sort of like opposition be, between, you know, left, left remainers and, uh, you know, the bad Brexiteers and all that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, these are, I mean, they're, they're less institutionalized in the set in a sense, because at a UK wide level, we don't really have, you know, a left mm. <laughs> sort of party, but certainly, all these uh, tensions um, exist on the left in the in the UK. In Scotland, we have a Green Party in uh, in office as well. They're not quite as gung ho, but they they're moving. Give they're them moving some time. <laughs> yeah, I know they're moving increasingly in that direction. I mean, the the invasion uh, of Ukraine was the opportunity for the Greens to dump their historic opposition to the arms trade. Um, you know, and they got their biggest. Um, anti-arms trades campaigners to say well we need to grow up a bit now because you know Putin's about so we need these we need Bay systems and you know we need all these big arms manufacturers so that's peace and ecological justice out the window in one fell swoop but anyway thanks um, very much for all your, your thoughts both on Germany and the wider situation it's very clarifying I think for socialists operating in different um, national contexts so thanks very much for all your thoughts on that Leandros. Thank you very much for having me on the show Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon 
at patreon.com forward slash contrascott. 